every marriage and family issue, whether you're talking about reproductive technologies, same-sex parenting, cohabitation, no-fault divorce, even like what is adoption and who is it for, every single conversation about marriage and family obsessively focused on adults and what they want and their desires and their longings and losses and identity. And it was always the kids who had to absolutely stick it and they had no voice and no representation. So eventually I got to the point where um, I started a nonprofit in essence to advocate on behalf of children to center them in every conversation about every topic of marriage and family. Um, and in essence insist that all adults, single, married, gay, straight, fertile and infertile conform to their rights rather than insisting that kids conform to what adults want. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim. I'm the COO of American Moment, and we have a great episode as always that never changes uh for you today we had in um katie faust from them before us but before i uh talk a little bit about that conversation make sure to go to our website americamoment.org you can see uh all kinds of information about the programs the things that we believe why we're doing what we're doing how you can get involved events that we have etc etc all of that can be seen on our website um, you can also rate and review this podcast five stars. That would be very cool. Um, if you give us a written review, we might read your review or comment or question on the show. So make sure to uh, go ahead and do that. And then if you're someone that's looking to get involved in DC, you haven't met one of us yet, you can fill out AmericanMoment.org slash join uh, and you'll be able to meet with a member of our team. Um, we'll make sure to get you plugged into everything that we're doing here in DC. So today we had uh, the honor of having Katie Faust from from them before us um, in studio for a podcast recording. All the credit for this happening to my wife. Um, I guess they were talking and my wife found out she was going to be in town and she was like, you have to have her on the podcast. So we went ahead and did it. We were able to make it work with less than a week's notice. Um, and it was a truly fascinating conversation. Uh, we talked about the, the need for um, both mothers and fathers distinctly uh, in the in the home. We talked about um, adoption and some of the pitfalls of of modern adoption, some of the failings of the um, the conservative movement as, as it relates to gay marriage. I mean, it was it was just truly a, a, a fantastic episode. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it a lot. So we will uh, go now to Katie Faust, the founder and president of Them Before Us. Katie, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I um, I'm a professional podcast listener, and <laughs> I'm I might need an intervention. I'm a bit of a junkie, but because I have such extensive exposure to a variety of podcasts, what I'm about to tell you is very important. Okay, and that is, I pronounce upon you to be the podcast with the best intro music. Wow, 100%, look at that! Hundred percent. Every single time I hear it, it just jazzes me up, and I think, where did these people get this? Where did they get this jingle? Because it's fantastic. So I actually have a very like distinct core memory unlocked of of us first picking that music. I think we were in our office and we were playing through a bunch of different ones, mm -hmm. and we finally picked that one, and we like danced around in the office to it on loop you for like knew. thirty minutes. You we were like, knew. this is going to be it. And even when we create like new 
uh, intro, like graphics and stuff, mm -hmm. music never changes. Good boy. It's good, it's keep, good music. Hold on to it. Yeah. Yeah. We got to keep it. Um, so as a, uh, a great listener of our of our show, you you know how this whole rigmarole goes. Mm -hmm. um, tell us your story, how you got where you are now um, and tell us about them before us. Yeah. Well, uh, a little more than 10 years ago, I wasn't doing anything that I'm doing now. I was just a pastor's wife, stay-at-home mom. We had just gotten home from China after adopting our youngest child from China. Um, I was not unconcerned with the culture wars, 100%. Um, but then that, that was right around 2012, and Obama had just evolved on the topic of marriage. And so what I heard media-wise was that the only reason you could possibly oppose gay marriage was bigotry, right? Mm -hmm. There was just a sea change in the media back then. I was a very naive listener of, to NPR. And uh, that's what I heard. Like all of a sudden, since they got the president, it felt like they were sort of free to play the bigot card, right? Only hatred, animus, phobia. That's the only reason you could possibly support traditional marriage. Um, and I wasn't a political animal. But I had been working with kids for a long time. My husband and I had done youth ministry from the time we were in college. Um, and I, I knew that marriage was important to kids. Uh, but the accusation of bigotry really rankled my hide, mainly because um, my mom has been in a relationship with her partner since I was 10. And so, you know, my parents were married until I was 10. They divorced. I split time between my dad's house and my mom's house. Um, and after the divorce, all through middle school, high school, you know, college, when I had my own kids, I was in relationship with my mom, in relationship with her partner. And there was like, not just no bigotry, there was no tension. Mm -hmm. Like, I love her. I don't consider my mother's partner to be my mother, but we are friends. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, uh, to me, I felt like it was just like holding Americans emotionally hostage because none of us hate our gay family and friends, none of us. But that was such that that was like the weaponization, I feel like, of the deepest bonds that we had that kept a lot of people quiet on the marriage issue. And they really used that sort of emotional manipulation to clear away opposition. So that was one reason why I decided to speak up about this was to say it's obscene to say that support for traditional marriage it, you know, is a function of bigotry or hatred. But the main thing that got me involved was I started hearing, especially as the redefinition of marriage debate came to Washington state, and then later when it came to the national uh, discussion, was the idea that kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads. But functionally, what that means is kids don't care if they have lost their mom or dad. That is what that means. A child cannot be in a relationship with two mothers or two fathers without losing their mother or father. And again, like I had had enough close contact with kids through youth ministry primarily, and then now through the friends of my own children to know that there's very few things more painful in someone's life than losing their mom or dad, mm -hmm. or maybe just even being in the home of their mom or dad when that mother or father did not love them well mm -hmm. or was disconnected or rejected them on some level, even if they were physically present. So I am like on the spectrum of um, truth teller and grace giver because we all kind of fall to one side or the other. I am a grace giver. I generally don't like conflict. I generally want to keep my friends. But there is something about violating the rights and well-being of kids that will even get me to be politically engaged. So I started writing about why marriage is a matter of justice for children, right? Mm -hmm. Why they need their mom and dad, um, why 
it is such an injustice to normalize a family structure where they will always lose one or both of their biological parents. Um, I began focusing on the topic of marriage because that is what was in the, the spotlight. But then I very quickly realized that every marriage and family issue, whether you're talking about reproductive technologies, same-sex parenting, cohabitation, no-fault divorce, even like what is adoption and who is it for, every single conversation about marriage and family obsessively focused on adults and what they want and their desires and their longings and losses and identity. And it was always the kids who had to absolutely stick it and they had no voice and no representation. So eventually I got to the point where um, I started a nonprofit in essence to advocate on behalf of children to center them in every conversation about every topic of marriage and family, um, and in essence insist that all adults, single, married, gay, straight, fertile, and infertile, conform to their rights rather than insisting that kids conform to what adults want. And that's where the name comes from, them before us. Right, right? them, the children, their rights come before us adults, our desires and our interests. Yeah, it's gala season, folks, and we at American Moment would like to personally invite you to the American conservative annual gala that is happening here on October 26th. By the time this episode comes out, uh, that means you will have very little time to register. Um, so I'm going to ask Jared here to, to flash the URL on the screen, put it in the description. Um, you're definitely not going to want to miss out on being at this event. We do a lot of events at American Moment. We attend a lot of events, um, but the TAC Gala is always an extreme highlight of the year. Uh, this year, they'll be having uh, Dr. Kevin Roberts, who is the president of the Heritage Foundation, as a keynote speaker, and they will also be giving awards to Michael Knowles and Ambassador Jack Matlock. Um, you're not going to want to miss it. They're going to be doing it at the Ritzy Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. Um, this is always a, a fantastic event. I learn a lot. All of your friends and fellow Moment of Truth listeners will be there, so we highly encourage you to register. We'll be there. Come up and talk to us. Tell us about your favorite episode of Moment of Truth. We look forward to seeing you there. Uh, you can check out more information about the gala on the American Conservative website. I was listening uh, in preparation for this podcast to the uh, talk that you gave at the uh, third National Conservatism Conference, which was great. Um we can link that in the description so so people can go take a look at that. Um, but one of the things you said in your introduction was, um, I'm going to butcher the exact quote because I didn't write it down word for word, but you were talking about um, basically that we've subverted the the rights and needs of, of children to concerns about um, religious liberty, our own desires, et cetera. Tell me more about that. Okay. So... I've made a lot of mistakes in advocacy. I think conservatives have made a lot of mistakes when it comes to messaging. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest blunders was this, this agreed upon desire that when we went into the battle of the national definition of marriage, that we were going to make it about religious liberty concerns. Mm -hmm. And oh no, if gay marriage passes, we might lose our 501c3 status. Yeah. You know, oh no, if gay marriage passes, we might have to bake a cake. And I understand religious liberty concerns are real. My husband's a pastor. We feel the pressure, blah, blah, blah. Not the primary concern. Yeah. The problem with gay marriage is not that it's going to infringe on Christians' rights to live out their convictions. It will, but that's not the primary concern. And when you message like that, do you know what people hear? They hear, wait a second. 
So my brother and his partner that have been together for 15 years and have been more faithful than a lot of the heterosexual marriages that I've seen, you're saying that they can't get married because you don't want to make a flower arrangement? Mm -hmm. Really? So it looks like we oppose gay marriage out of self-interest, which is kind of how we messaged. Yeah. But the reality is that you redefine marriage Mothers and fathers drop out of parenting law, which is what we've seen. Parenting law becomes gender neutral, right? It becomes parent one, parent two. It paves the way for reproductive technologies, which sever the connection between one or both biological parents at the moment of conception. You legalize gay marriage, children lose their mom or dad. Mm -hmm. And so that is how you're supposed to message. A, because it's true. And B, because it's effective. And then it lays the groundwork for you to also fight all the other battles about marriage and family that are out there. And so this idea that the problem with gay marriage was religious liberty tanked us mm. and honestly works against us when we want to draw attention to the myriad other threats to children's rights in the family. So I think that was a major blunder. And it's amazing because we, when we had the Respect for Marriage Act last year, we just recreated that whole thing yeah. and failed again. Yeah, that is a fascinating critique i've never heard that before um that is i'm gonna be thinking about that for a couple of days um uh do you think that um the state of gay marriage uh in the the u.s is unwinnable at this point because of the blunders that we've made like have we have we passed the point of no return natural law is like a beach ball you're trying to hold under the water you can do it for a while yeah but after a while, it's going to rise back up to the surface. I think that what happened with Roe versus Wade is the right template for what needs to happen with Obergefell, right? Mm -hmm. Natural law, the fact that this is a child that is in existence, that can feel pain, that is on the spectrum of human development, just like all of us have been, you cannot suppress that forever. Mm -hmm. It is the exact same thing with mothers and fathers. Children come from a man and woman. They get their biological identity from that man and woman. They are the most likely to be safe and loved when they're raised by that man and woman. Their, their development is maximized when they're raised by a man and woman. You cannot suppress that kind of natural truth forever. So the question is, what are we going to do to start allowing our law to reflect that truth? I actually asked Mike Ferris this question uh, a year and a half ago, right before he transferred leadership of ADF to Kristen Wagner. And I said, you know, right after Roe, I, there was this contingent of lawyers that went in to try to figure out where's the loopholes. How can we start to figure out where the footholds are to overturn this? And it took a long time and a lot of different attempts, but they did it. And I said, who's doing that on Obergefell? And he said, nobody. It can't be done. Hmm. And it can't be done the way we've always done it is the answer. Because the way we've always done it is we have always said, well, this is about the emotional bonds of adults. And historically, you could think about it that way. And that is actually like through that lens, that is why we passed gay marriage, because we said, well, this is about the other side successfully made it about emotional bonds with adults. We failed to make it about a child's rights and a child's best interest. And that's why we lost. So personally, I am going to be hiring a man named Jeff Schaefer, who I know presented last <laughs> night at yeah. your um, gala. Um, and he has a legal strategy to regain lost ground on the marriage fight. Uh, we're going to do it. But it's going to be unconventional. It's not going to be the way we've always done it, because Mike Ferris is right. 
Obergefell absolutely shut the door on making any kind of distinctions between adult romantic relationships. So Mm -hmm. we need to fight for this differently. And we're going to do it in a way that forces the conversation to be about the best interest of the children, not how how much love and connection do you feel with this other adult, which, by the way, is also the means where we're going to see polygamy normalized in the next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff's a a fantastic guy. We're very happy to have him at the Theology of American Statecraft event uh, that we had last night. Um, We're a big fan of his and the Hale Institute. I'm also Uh, a big fan of his. Yeah. Yeah. Generally. Can't wait to be his boss. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm sure he'll love to hear that. Um, Oh, he has. (laughs) But um, I'm not a uh, scientist by any means. Our listeners know that. Um, but I'm I'm curious to hear more about um, this kind of biological bond mm-hmm. between, um, you know, fathers and mothers distinctly, like yes. like separately. What what each role there is. And that may seem kind of like a, a a gimme, like it's 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 simple, but I think it's a good foundation to build the rest of the um, conversation off of. So um, what are children missing uh, when they don't have a mother or a father. Mm -hmm. Good. So our first book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement, um, is really the manual for our nonprofit. The first chapter is why do children really have a right to their mother and father, which is actually going to be a major stumbling block for your audience, because very academic and in-tune conservatives bristle at the term children's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, that is because the left has so adulterated and co-opted it to um, advance things that are not just not children's rights, but ideologies that very often subvert children's actual rights. So the first chapter is making the case for why children do indeed have a right to their mother and father. But the second chapter is about why biology matters in the parent-child relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, biology is irrelevant. Love makes a family has been the mantra that has normalized all manner of modern families. And when I say modern family, that it just means uh, modern family is code for child loss. Mm -hmm. A modern family requires that a child lose some or all of a relationship with their mother or father to be in that family. Okay, so we have accepted this narrative that biology is irrelevant. But when you look at child rights, well-being and identity, what you see is biology is hyper relevant for all of those different areas. So why does biology matter? Three reasons. Number one, biology matters to children because only the two people responsible for their existence grant something to children that they crave, and that is their biological identity. It is very hard to answer the question, who am I? If you cannot answer the question, whose am I? And so this is actually we and how do we know that this is true by looking at the populations that have been raised apart from their biological identity. So you look at adoption best practice in this country. And I was the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world before I had kids. So I was very familiar with international and domestic standards for adoption. And what we see, especially in domestic adoption, is this radical shift away from closed adoption, which was not just practiced but recommended in the 50s and 60s and 70s to now 95% of adoptions in the United States are open. What's the difference between those? Like what is a closed versus an open? Closed is you don't have any identifying information or any contact with the child's first family. Open adoption, there's degrees of openness, but open adoption means you have some knowledge Mm -hmm. or some contact or some ongoing relationship with 
somebody in the first family. Maybe it's just the grandparents, but sometimes it's the birth mother herself. And what they've found is social workers have found that children benefit from as many connections as possible from their first family, even if they can't be raised by them. Hmm. And we overhauled adoption best practice once we recognized that. So even if there's a situation where it's the birth parents are unable or unwilling or should not parent the child, we've still recognized that the child has a right to and benefits from knowledge at minimum of who their parents are. Mm -hmm. Because kids have these questions. Do they look like me? Do they know that I exist? Why did they give me up? Would they love me if they met me? Who is my mother? You know, if they don't know, who is she? And we see this very clearly now with the population, not that was separated from their parents at birth, but separated from their parents at conception. Kids created through sperm and egg donation. They have deep identity issues. And the only study that we have that compares outcomes between kids created through sperm donation and adoption showed that the sperm donor kids who had at least one biological parent have more identity issues than the adoptees. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And we can talk about why that is. But the reality is that even if you're raised by a biological parent, there is something about being intentionally separated from one of your genetic parents that plunges you into an identity crisis. Mm -hmm. Likely because those, one reason why is because those kids that we're surveying now had more anonymous donation, not open ID um, donors. And so, and the other aspect, and this is really the distinction I think, they were intentionally cut off from one of their parents versus the adoptees who the people raising the adopted kids did not choose for them to be abandoned did not choose for them to be orphaned. People raising children created through sperm, egg donation, and surrogacy chose for their child to be alienated from one or both parents. And that has leveled an increased psychological burden on kids. Yeah. So biology matters because those two adults give children their biological identity. And you could argue, and others have argued better than me, that one of the reasons why we have so many kids seeking sexual and gender identities is because we have robbed them of the places where they have historically answered the question, who am I? And that is in kinship bonds, ethnic connections and familial bonds. Yeah. Um, so number one, identity. The second reason why biology matters in the parent-child relationship is statistically, statistically, biological parents are the safest, most connected to and most protective of children. You can look at it from an evolutionary perspective, which um, has generated a a theory called um, the Cinderella effect. It's very, very well known that unrelated adults do not invest the same amount of time and money, do not offer the same level of protection, are not as connected to the children in their home. And it's so widely observed that evolutionary biologists have coined the phrase the Cinderella effect Mm -hmm. to capture the experience of kids who are raised by stepmothers or stepfathers or cohabiting partners. Um, You see this the most starkly in terms of child safety. Um, Evolutionary biologists um, Wilson and Daly studied in the 90s rates of child abuse and filicide among Canadian youth and found that kids were 120 times, not percent, times more likely to be killed by a stepfather than by their own biological father. Hmm. And so when you're talking about wanting children to be safe and loved, one of the best ways to ensure that children are safe and loved is to insist that they be raised by both biological parents in a married relationship. Yeah, And then getting to 
what I think you were initially asking, and I've wound my way around there, <laughs> is why does it matter um, in terms of male and female, right? Um, that if you are defending children's right to be raised by both biological parents, you will automatically gift children with both halves of humanity in their home every day. Mm. And men and women are different. Yeah. Gender is not a social construct. Um, that even the most egalitarian societies where women have the most educational and vocational choices, we find the most stereotypically female and most stereotypically male adults. Women tend to choose to stay home with their kids. Men tend to choose careers that are more idea and object driven. Women mm -hmm. tend to choose careers where there's more relationship and caring and nurturing. So you see that I would say demonstrated in the most critical ways in the home. Um, and your cheat sheet, we go into this in chapter three of our book, we detail the differences between maternal and paternal love. A few quick examples. Um, men and women talk to their kids differently. Men, I mean, when you come home and you see your 10 month old baby and she's like, dad, 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 up, amen, right? Because those are mm -hmm. her two words. Yeah. Um, and you don't say, hi, little baby, daddy loves you. You go, dad slated at the office today. I had this killer interview and tomorrow I'm prepping for my trip. And you talk to her like you talk to everyone else. Yeah. You don't simplify your language the way that your wife does. Yeah. Now your She's wife. She's going to laugh at the accuracy of this, by the way. Well, She's going to think that's hilarious. Because you're a man. And this is how men operate. Right. Yeah. But she says, oh, baby, mom's so tired. I'm going to take a little nappy nap. Okay, mm -hmm. women automatically simplify their language right down to the child's level. So when you have a male parent and a female parent, what you have is a parent that makes sure the kids understand 100% of what they're saying and one parent who's always cognitively pushing their child's language development. Mm. Neither of you guys are trying to do that. Yeah. It is your maleness and femaleness working itself out in the home. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, um, do is your baby ever thrown up in the air? Yes, I do that. Does your wife, does your wife throw the baby? No. And she also does not like it. She doesn't like that you throw the baby. Does your wife ever take the baby and strap her onto her body and walk around the house or go for walks? Literally every day. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So this is the difference is that women tend to naturally care for fathers tend to naturally play with. Mm -hmm. It is not someone anybody, nobody tells you to do this, but within 10 seconds of touching your baby, she is away from your body up in the air being rocked and swung and twirled. Yeah. That's how it goes. Yeah. Now, kids actually learn something very important about the world through dad play in a way that they don't learn about mom play. Now, mom, what she does is she lowers the cortisol levels of your baby mm -hmm. because um, cortisol level is the stress hormone. Your daughter is tired, hungry, sick, scared. Cortisol goes up. She cries. Women have a much lower tolerance for baby cry than you do. The baby yeah. cries and you throw a Cheerio her way mm -hmm. and say, I'll be there in a minute or maybe not. If you calm down with the Cheerio, then I'm not going to come. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. She hears the baby cry. She drops what she's doing. She grabs the baby. She pulls her in, maybe straps her on. And within 20 seconds, the skin to skin contact that mom naturally provides increases your daughter's oxytocin level, which is the only thing that drops her cortisol level. Hmm. Mothers soothe through their bodies and their brains are wired to respond to that need for soothing at much higher levels than you do. OK, yeah. so her nurturing is going to help your daughter emotionally calibrate your playfulness and your aggressiveness and your physicality is going to help your daughter explore the world and push her into bigger and better things. Yeah. Last example. 
because mothers care for children. Your wife probably is already having her do all kinds of fine motor things, right? This is the place where in the kitchen with mom, she's cutting the banana with a, a butter knife. Um, everything that your wife does, the coloring, the cutting with scissors, is developing your daughter's fine motor skills. The way that you interact with your daughter develops her gross motor skills. The wrestling, the running, the climbing, racing up and down the stairs on your hands and knees. Yeah. Okay. So that's just an example of you guys are not trying to do anything different. You're just naturally different. And amazingly, as if by design, you are perfectly complementing one another. Yeah. It's it's very interesting. Um, feel like you're reading my mind right now. Uh, <laughs> I, I do this thing when I when I get home. Uh, when I'm here in DC, I get home and, um, you know, while my wife is getting uh dinner ready and everything, I'll sit Margo on my lap and I, I just explain my day. <laughs> Tell me so what you said. And I, then I had this meeting and, mm -hmm. and then I did this and I went and talked to that guy and he was an idiot and, you know, blah, 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 <laughs> yeah. and go through this whole thing. And then, and then, yeah, usually within like a minute of that, I'm swinging her around. I do this thing that she thinks is hilarious where I'll, my wife does not think it's hilarious, but I'll grab her by her ankles and I like shake her upside down and I I, I pretend like I'm a school bully. I go, where's my lunch money? <laughs> and she thinks it's like the funniest thing. Oh, I'm like, like your, your wife is like, I don't know. And Margot loves it. Yeah. She's yeah. like, do the school bully thing again, daddy. Or yeah. when she has words, she'll be like, bully, bully. Yeah. So um, she thinks it's very funny. My 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 wife uh, does, does not. Um, I recently... Uh, finished this uh, book that was uh, reprinted by Canon Press. Uh, it was called Men in Marriage by mm -hmm. George Gilder, which I think was originally released uh, under another title back in the 80s. Um, and they were talking, uh, or what Gilder was writing about was uh, basically what a lack of a husband and father in a home, what, what the outcomes are. Uh, several of the chapters are about what the, what the outcomes are for children. Mm-hmm. I.e. they are um, much more likely to, uh, you know, live a life of crime, much right. more likely to get divorced, right. die earlier. Right. Um, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, what is the just because this is something that I know less about, what is the the kind of mirror impact um, when there's not a mother in the home? Mm, good question. So first of all, let me fortify what you're saying about fathers, um, because we have a lot of data on father absence and father loss. Um, and I'll talk about why in a second. But um, there was a study done in 2017. So after this book, right, he didn't know this, but he would have been like, mm, makes sense. Yeah. That showed what happened to children when they lost a father to death, divorce or incarceration. And they actually measured the length of children's telomeres. That is the end caps of their chromosomes and found that children who experienced father loss had shorter telomeres. Wow, that's so like, right. So you lose your dad and it impacts every cell of your body. Now, your telomeres are responsible for health and longevity. And so that is one reason why we see children of divorce, for example, who have higher rates of autoimmune disorders and chronic illnesses, mm -hmm. because it has reset their body to high alert in some ways um, that has led to in more inflammation, right? So the other aspect, you know, that I didn't cover in terms of why mothers and fathers matter is because children don't just want abstract caregivers, mm -hmm. right? They don't just need people who love them. They actually crave male and female love. They want to be loved by a man and they want to be loved by a woman. And when there is no dad, they will find a man to love them. Mm -hmm. and that is why you see that children without dads fall into almost predictable 
maladies. Boys, higher levels of crime. Some of that is gang related because they're like, I will find a man to love me. Mm-hmm. He will love me by having me run his drugs. But at least I have a man who's shaping me, informing me and loving me because even though my mother loved me and my grandmother's involved in my life, they did not satisfy my longing for male love. Girls who don't have a dad have much higher teen pregnancy rates because they have also found men who will Mm -hmm. love them, not with the same level of connectedness, investment, investment and protectiveness as their own biological father, but a man who will connect with them, invest in them and exploit them for maybe a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. You actually cannot, and I mean, I say this all the time, you will never legislate away a child's longing to be loved by a mother and father. It is so innate. It is so, it's probably one of the most universal human longings to be loved by their mother and father. And yet our culture, law, and technology are acting as if it doesn't exist at all. So what about the, what about the studies on the impact of mother loss? We don't have any. Like, why do you think that is? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's because mother loss is so foreign to our species, mm. right? That it always takes a man and a woman to make a baby, right? They are always present at the moment that the child is conceived. The problem is that biology only insists on a three to five minute contribution from him. Mm-hmm. But biology insists on a nine and a half month connection with the woman, right? They, she is literally physically unable to abandon her baby. She can carve the baby out, mm-hmm. but she can't abandon the baby. And then once the baby's born, and you might have seen this transformation in your wife, there's all these biological systems that create and reinforce a, a literal chemical bond between mother and child, right? A lot of that oxytocin exchange, the oxytocin is heightened during labor and delivery. And then every single time she nurses, breastfeeds, or or cuddles the baby you know wrapping her that oxytocin is is reinforcing right oxytocin is called the cuddle hormone Mm -hmm. because it creates a bond it literally communicates i belong to you you belong to me and you look at you know seasons historically and you would have women breastfeeding children until toddlerhood and sometimes beyond so i mean (laughs) this is the only relationship where you are literally connected by a cord Mm -hmm. you are literally connected by a cord so biology has made the motherless child very, very difficult for our species. We've always had fatherless children. Rarely have we had very young children who are motherless because even if the mother died during childbirth, the baby would often die. They couldn't live without the mother. So it's interesting because we do a lot of work at them before us campaigning against surrogacy, commercial, altruistic, gestational, traditional. It's always mother loss no matter how it's being done or who's taking the baby home, it's always intentional mother loss. And people will say, well, what about the studies? The fact that we have no studies should tell you that this is so foreign to our species, we shouldn't even play around with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. I had not, I had not thought about that. Um, I am here, Nick, (laughs) to help you you, out. You got me. Um, So uh, shifting gears a little bit, you know, you've, you've got it. We were talking about this just for uh, we started. You've got a new book um, coming out um, about uh, basically raising, you know, kids uh, in a in a in a culture and particularly in areas that seem to hate everything about, mm-hmm. um, you know, the American family, about children. Um, tell us about that book, your thesis, yeah. what you're proposing. Uh, well, I'm very passionate about two things. Number one is uh, when it comes to 
what's happening in the world culturally, legally, and technologically um, than before us is basically communicating, don't touch the kids. Like whatever's going on in your life, leave the kids alone. And so I'm very passionate about that, have an entire nonprofit dedicated to it. Uh, I'm also very passionate about don't touch my kids. Mm-hmm. And we have raised our kids in Seattle. They have largely gone to public schools. Um, they are now college down to eighth grade. Um, and the world does not get to have them and doesn't have them. You know, we have um, through applying some timeless parenting principles to our current cultural moment, been able to fortify our kids to the point where um, they can spot a lie. They know how to stand even if they are standing alone. They can, at age-appropriate ways, articulate a a Christian and conservative worldview. Um, They know how to come home and get more information if they need to complete an assignment that is pushing them to violate their conscience. Um, And so we wrote a book called Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City about how do you parent? How do you instill your worldview and your values in your kids even when everything is against you? So um, it's the best we could do. You know, we're not I I wish I could say, well, I've written this and all of my kids are married with children voting Republican and in wholesome marriages. And so there's a possibility one of them could become a Bernie bro and Mm. I will, you know, eat crow for a while. (laughs) But for now, you know, what we see is we're very close to our kids. They can stand on their own. They uh, are able to navigate a world that is hostile to them without being conformed to the world instead of being influenced by the culture they're influencing the culture so um you know we talk the whole book is strategy like what do you do at what ages what should be your goal at each stage of child development how should you introduce some of these most challenging concepts why is it that you're teaching your kids why and what are you teaching your kids to be for right it's not a book called raising anti-woke kids or raising anti-left kids it is raising conservative kids because you have to teach your kids what to conserve. There are certain best ideas from biology, economy, history. You have to teach your kids to be for, to conserve those ideas. So we sort of identify what are the ideas that are under attack right now that you most need to drill down on to inoculate your kids Mm -hmm. from the woke virus that is trying to find them on social media platforms in their friend groups and at school. Yeah. So uh, a lot of the conservatives that I know that live in more uh, liberal metropolitan areas, you know, uh, a a lot of them, you know, send their kids to private school. They might do homeschool, you know, not even um, risk trying to have to combat everything that's coming up in those schools. Um, Why why do you think um, it's something worth doing and knowing how Mm -hmm. to do well the main thing is we don't advocate for you should send your kid to private school you should send them to public school you should homeschool them um we have a a entire chapter called you are the program you there is nothing you can do school wise camp wise like curriculum wise to say if i do this i will get the kid that i want you the parent are the program you are the primary educator for a reason Uh, mainly because you know your kid best Kids are different, but also you are, them before us, the most connected to, invested in, and protective of your children. You have the most interest in making sure that they flourish in the long term. No teacher is going to have that. No camp counselor, right? Nobody is going to have the same level of investment and interest in your kids. So the main point of the book is 
you have to be the primary trainer of your child. Mm -hmm. Some people choose to do that by sending them to homeschool or homeschooling them or private school. But we're telling you, you can also do it if your kids are in public school. Um, 90% of people are for a variety of yeah. reasons. Some because they're clueless or think it's okay. Some because they really don't have the option of having one person stay home full time yeah. and homeschool. Some, many don't have the money for private school, even if two of them are working. Yeah. So these are strategies that will work. Um, it, you have to be very intentional. It doesn't happen by accident. You have to be very focused on exactly what to do and when, but you can do it. I mean, if, if my co-author and I, if we've done it with seven kids, boys and girls, variety of personalities in the most, I would say the most liberal city um, in the country at woke public schools, um, you can do it. Yeah. Do you think there's a um, a line where that would be something that you would no longer recommend to people? Well, so, yes, um, you actually have to make those kinds of on the grounds evaluation with every kid every year. Yeah. So like we I actually we our plan was to have our kids in private school during elementary school because the elementary school philosophy, our phase of elementary school, um, our objective is saturate your kids in truth and beauty. So we follow um, the trivium sort of layout mm -hmm. where it's the grammar phase up until age 10 or 11, where they don't have the ability to critically sort through truth and mistruth. Right. That is yeah. the sponge phase. That is when they just memorize the rules of math and English. And, you know, in the in the classical model, they're just like singing songs about U.S. history, memorizing. They're not critically thinking through. Yeah. So your job as a parent in the elementary school years is saturate them in truth and beauty. You do need to filter out distortions of about biology, economy, history, you do need to filter out aggressive adults. So if you have a teacher in the public school that is seeking to evangelize and discipleship, disciple your child into a worldview that is totally contrary, yeah, pull your kids out, yeah. right? But largely, you know, we have found that even in public school, if there is something that's coming down the pipe, Black Lives Matter week, or a teacher that's presenting something, a lot of times we've been able to go and say, A, we have concerns about this. We're going to pull our kid out for this week. Or please don't talk with them about this. Or we give, we subvert. We know that it's coming. We tell our kid what's happening ahead of time. And then they go in uh, and it actually serves as a bit of a foil for the Christian and conservative worldview. Mm -hmm. So we do evaluate. There's friction. There's friction, A, in this world in general, certainly if you're sending your kids to public school. So we do discern, is the friction sharpening their world or is it grinding them down to a nub? And if it's grinding your kids down, you pull them, right? Yeah. But I will also say that your kid does need to be sharpened and you, you plant a tree in a biodome and it can grow up beautifully, but then you, you take away the protections and it's exposed to a little bit of wind and it collapses because you can't develop a root system without resistance. Mm -hmm. And so you have to decide like how much resistance there needs to be some, right? You cannot completely shelter your kids until college. Like we have seen that and those kids fall apart. You, the real question is how much exposure do you give to them at what ages? And that's what we try to do in our book is say yeah. minimal exposure in elementary school, but not only exposure to challenging ideas and distortions in middle school, but you, the parent, need to introduce them to those distortions and train yeah. them and make them experts. Yeah, that's um, 
very interesting. I'm very much looking forward to reading that book. We'll we'll link it in the description. When does it when does it come out? It's like, like next week. Okay, cool. So it'll be yeah. out by the time uh, this episode drops. So, um, so that'll be that'll be great. We'll make sure to link that uh, in the in the description. Um, non Amazon link, please. Yeah. Jared, Jake, non Amazon, okay. <laughs> please. Um, uh, so. I want to shift gears a, a little bit before we close um, to particularly talk about adoption because mm-hmm. that's something that um, you have uh, a lot of experience in. Just tell me your general thoughts on it. No mm-hmm. no real structured question. Just give an overview of kind of our uh, adoption system in America. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So adoption is a just society's response to children who have lost their parents. Okay, that is what adoption is and that is what it should. That is how we need to think about it. Now, unfortunately, people on the left and the right have got adoption wrong in a lot of ways. On the left, right, you've got people saying LGBT people have a right to adopt. Mm -hmm. I have a right to adopt. And what is our child centric response to that? The response is, no, you don't. You don't have a right to adopt because nobody has a right to adopt. You, the same-sex couple, does not have a right to adopt a child. You, the sweet, infertile Christian heterosexual couple, you don't have a right to adopt. Nobody has a right to a child that is not biologically their child. Mm. Children who have lost their parents have a right to be adopted. Okay, adoption is not for adults, it's for kids. Now, we've also erred on the right when it comes to adoption, right? We have been so petrified to talk about any of the challenges or drawbacks or losses in adoption because anytime you do this, people freak out and they say, oh no, if you talk about the harms or the losses of adoption, it'll drive people to abortion. Mm-hmm. And we got to do better than that. You know, I actually had a conversation with Abby Johnson on her podcast because we're both adoptive moms and we were talking about how it's been hard on our children. She got so much backlash for this. Mm-hmm. No, you can't say this. You can't say how hard it is. It'll drive people to abortion. You, we've ha- We just have to do better because the reality is adoption begins with loss. It begins with loss for the birth mother and it 100% begins with loss for the child. And what we see in adoption is even children who are adopted at birth are largely adopted by people who are wealthier, better educated, and who even spend statistically more time with their kids than the average biological parent. So that's a, that is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And yet, adoptees have more externalizing disorders. They struggle more in school. They have a harder time trusting and attaching and forming their own relationships. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the day that you are born should be the day that you see the woman you already love for the first time, not the last. And so adoptees call that a primal wound. Mm -hmm. We have severed that connection between the only person that they know on the day they're born and in essence, they start the clock, they they restart it, right? They should have been nine and a half months into the bond. They have to reattach to a biological stranger and start over. Mm -hmm. And psychologically and developmentally, that hinders adopted kids. We should be able to talk honestly about that because A, it helps adoptive parents go into this more realistically. Um, Otherwise, you know, they can go into an adoption situation and it's hard. Like I'm, I'm an adoptive mom. I've worked at an adoption agency. I'm surrounded by people that have adopted. Largely, it is not, we could parent a baby. Baby needs a home. Ding, problem solved. Yeah. I know a handful of cases like that. Usually there's struggle. But because we on the right have so over romanticized adoption, when there is struggle, 
sometimes the parents or the child and or the child go, there must be something wrong. But the reality is you're doing something that no parent or child should have to do. And that is work outside of the biological system of attachment to graft a child into your home and raise them. So the bottom line is that adoption, when it's done right, the child is the client, right? Adults conform to what the child needs. It's not a situation where the child conforms to what the adults want. Hmm. So a lot of our challenge with adoption is simply understanding what adoption is and who it's for. Yeah. We were talking a little bit uh, before we started recording about um, the obstacles and challenges with uh, the foster care mm-hmm. um, system and, and you know, how people primarily choose to um, adopt uh, people that may be um, less at need than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so walk us through a little bit like the 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 background of kind of the way like we were talking about this this um uh the way that you know the government gets involved in the way you Mm -hmm. you parent a child and that sort of thing tell us more about Mm -hmm. that well you know we've seen recently that the government has in a couple different states one was oregon i think the other one was massachusetts literally said you christian parents are not going to be able to even adopt a child because you won't validate their gender identity right Mm -hmm. or you won't you know accept them if they come out as gay. And so there is so much government involvement in how foster parents and adoptive parents raise their kids if you're adopting them domestically. Um, And, you know, there's there's uh, it's a minefield. Right. So I know people that have done overseas adoptions. I know people that have done private adoptions. I know people that are in the midst of foster care right now. And it does severely restrict how you parent them. So when we felt very strongly about adopting, immediately we decided that we knew, I knew that we were going to go to China because I had worked at the Chinese adoption agency. I speak Chinese. I've got a lot of love for Chinese language, culture, and people. And I knew that if we adopted a foster child, we would have two different sets of discipline, two different standards for how we're parenting our child, that the government, in essence, would be parenting our foster child and we would be um, parenting our biological children. Mm -hmm. So the thing about China adoption is you go to China, they place the child with you the next day, within 24 hours, usually, according to the Chinese government, the U.S. government and you know, your local agency, that child is 100% yours as if they had been born to you. You have 100% legal rights. And I actually think there's a lot of benefits to that um, because what happens is adoption gets hard. And in foster care, what often happens is the child is placed with you. You're so excited at first. Things get very hard. And because they're not 100% yours, you go, I got to, I got to let this go. Mm -hmm. And you get this massive turnover. And that's where you get kids in the foster care system that go through home after home after home after home. A lot of which probably could have worked out if the parents had total parental authority, um, ability to parent the way they wanted. And And no way out. Yeah, and the responsibility to do it. So um, anyway, there's lots of benefits and drawbacks, you know, depending on how you're looking at it. But um, yeah, the way that we're doing licensing. I mean, and I do think there should be very stringent requirements for adoptive parents. That's actually one of the biggest distinctions between adoption and reproductive technologies is adoptive parents go through vetting, screening, background checks, references, home studies, medical reports, financial reports, um, post-placement supervision. People that procure children through big fertility write a check. Yeah. Right. There's, you literally buy a baby. You literally buy a baby. In yeah. adoption, we paid upwards of $20,000 
Zero of it went to birth parents. Mm -hmm. All of it went to people that were making sure we would not abuse our child in big fertility. Uh, the entire system is predicated on paying birth parents, which is actually the dividing line between trafficking and adoption when you look at international standards. Hmm. So it's uh, the two could not be any more different. We spend the entire um, ninth chapter of our book contrasting adoption and reproductive technologies because yeah. one of them protects children's rights and the other ones violate them. Yeah. It's kind of a last question before we close. Um, what do you think about this? Uh, you know, I, I see a lot of, I think of really big growth in people going abroad to adopt in particular, and they might not necessarily be in the situation that you, you were in where you had a, an actual real tie to a mm -hmm. country, speak the language, et cetera. Um, but the, the, like w what I'm trying to get at here is, um, how many kids do we have in the United States that, that need, um, you know, loving parents that right. are going to take care of them? Uh, and why do you think people are going abroad instead? Yeah, I, th I, I need to fact check this. My guess is around 200,000 that are in the foster care system that don't that are available for adoption, right? There's all kinds of kids that are in and out of the system that may not have their parental rights fully relinquished. Um, and uh, international adoption was a bit, was at its height around the year 2000. It has been declining. So actually, international adoption is not a really big thing anymore. Um, adoption is down in general. Mm. Um, part of that is changes that have been made in the foster care system, which also are, are somewhat damaging to kids. So what used to be the standard in adoption was the best interest of the child, not what the adoptive parents wanted and not even what the birth parents wanted if they were abusive or if they really should not have their parental rights held on to. But now, and Naomi um, Riley Schaefer at American Enterprise Institute has done the best work on this, how our adoption world has shifted away from adoption in foster care to reunification, family reunification. But a lot of that just means that the... The parents who really should no longer have custody of their children are retaining custody of their children. Some of this is fueled by the idea that white parents should not be adopting brown children. Mm -hmm. And so the brown children, black children remain in homes where they have already been significantly abused. And um, but because of supposed, you know, because of wokeism. Right. It, it's it's so awful for a black child to be placed with white parents that better to be, stay in the home of the mom with the abusive boyfriend mm -hmm. than have them placed. So um, there's there's problems with adoption everywhere and on all sides. Um, my message is adoption's not about you. If you feel called to adopt, then I do think that you should go get the kid that don't don't go for the white drug free infant. Go for the one that really is forsaken. Mm -hmm. Go for the one that really has no other options. Yeah. Go for the one that might die. Yeah. If you don't. So so I I said that was my last question, but um I lied. I just well, I came up now. with a yeah, I just came up with another question. Um what what do you think is the best way to um fix the adoption system we have in America in general? Mm -hmm. Well, the same way that we fix every marriage and family issue, which is centering the conversation on the child. That is why them before us, I think, has the level of influence that we have, which I'm overwhelmed and grateful for. We're on the organizing board for the um, ARC, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, Jordan Peterson's new project. Um, you know, we have been involved in countries across the world. We work at the state level. We do interviews with everybody. And I think the reason why this message resonates is because it's very simple. Put the kids first. Mm -hmm. That is the way you get the correct definition of marriage. That is the way you figure out 
how our divorce laws should be structured. That is how you rebut the idea that two dads or two moms are no problem. That is how you spotlight the commodification of children in reproductive technologies. And that is how you right size the adoption world. Put the kids first. Put the kids first in placements. When it comes to choosing the right home for them, it's not just, you know, whatever, you know, two men have the shiniest profile. It is children are children benefit from a male and female parent. So prioritize mothers and fathers. Put the children first when it comes to figuring out whether or not you should remove them from an abusive home or leave them with parents that are largely, I mean, don't weaponize CPS, you yeah. know? And so it, the same answer applies across the board. Elevate the rights and well-being of children and you get the right answer to all these questions. Yeah. Katie, thank you very much. Um, where can people find you? Keep up with all the work that you're doing uh, and stay in touch. Yeah. Thenbeforeus.com. Go subscribe at the bottom of the page. We're on all the social media. Um, books are everywhere on Amazon and other places. <laughs> so anywhere that you want to buy a book, buy a book. All right. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for listening to yet another fantastic episode of American Moments Podcast, Moment of Truth. Once again, if you want to go to our website and see everything that we're about, that's AmericanMoment.org. You can find stuff about our uh, programs, uh, what we're doing, why we believe what we do, what we believe. Uh, make sure to go check those things out. You can also rate and review the podcast, five-star reviews only. Please uh, go subscribe on YouTube. Make sure to share those clips around to all your friends. Uh, Jake puts a lot of hard work into that stuff, uh, so make sure to give him some, some due credit. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.